Chapter 18 of The Defiant Agents by Andre Norton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Defiant Agents. Chapter 18 They lay along the rim of a vast basin, a scooping out of earth so wide they could not sight its other side. The bed of an ancient lake, Travis speculated, or perhaps even the arm of a long dried sea. But now the hollow was filled with rolling waves of golden grass, tossing heavy heads under the flowing touch of a breeze, with the exception of a space about a mile ahead where the round domes, black, gray, brown, broke the yellow in an irregular oval around the globular silver bead of a spacer, a larger ship than that which had brought the Apaches, but of the same shape. The horse heard, to the west. Nolan evaluated the scene with the eyes of an experienced raider. Zoe, Decle, you take the horses. They nodded and began the long crawl which would take them two miles or more from the party to stampede the horses. To the Mongols in those dome-like yurts, horses were wealth, life itself. They would come running to investigate any disturbance among the grazing ponies, thus clearing the path to the ship and the reds there. Travis, Jill Lee, and Buck, armed with the star-guns, would spearhead that attack, cutting into the substance of the ship itself until it was a sieve through which they could shake out the enemy. Only when the installations it contained were destroyed might the Apaches hope for any assistance from the Mongols, either the outlaw pack waiting well back on the prairie, or the people in the yurts. The grass rippled, and Nagan Ulta poked out a nose, parting stems before Travis. The Apache beamed an order, sending the coyotes with the horse-raiding party. He had seen how the animals could drive hunted split-horns. They would do as well with the ponies. Cadessa was safe. The coyotes had made that clear by the fact that they had joined the attacking party an hour earlier. With Eskelta and Manolito, she was on her way back to the north. Travis supposed he could be well pleased that their reckless plan had succeeded as well as it had, but when he thought of the Tatar girl all he could see was her convulsed face close to his in the ship corridor, her raking nails raised to tear his cheek. She had an excellent reason to hate him, yet he hoped. They continued to watch both horse-herd and domes. There were people moving about the yurts, but no signs of life at the ship. Had the Red shut themselves in there, warned in some way of the two disasters which had whittled down their forces? "'Ah!' Nolan breathed. One of the ponies had raised its head and was facing the direction of the camp, suspicion plain to read in its stance. The Apaches must have reached the point between the herd and the domes, which had been their goal. And the Mongol guard— who had been sitting cross-legged, the reins of his mount dangling close to his hand, got to his feet. The ancient Apache war-cry that had sounded across deserts, canyons, and southwestern Terran plains to ice the blood ripped just as freezingly through the honey-hued air of Topaz. The horses wheeled, racing upslope away from the settlement. A figure broke from the grass, flapped his arms at one of the mounts, grabbed at a flying mane, and pulled himself up on the bare back. Only a master horseman would have done that, 
but the whooping rider now drove the herd on, assisted by the snapping and snarling coyotes. Declay, Jill Lee identified the reckless rider. That was one of his rodeo tricks. Among the yurts, it was as if someone had ripped up a rotten log to reveal an ant's nest, and sent the alarmed insects into a frenzy. Men boiled out of the domes, the majority of them running for the horse pasture. One or two were mounted on ponies that must have been staked out in the settlement. The main war-party of Apaches skimmed silently through the grass on their way to the ship. The three who were armed with the alien weapons had already tested their range by experimentation back in the hills, but the fear of exhausting whatever powered those barrels had curtailed their target practice. Now they snaked to the edge of the bare ground between them and the ladder hatch of the spacer. To cross that open space was to provide targets for lances and arrows, or the superior armaments of the Reds. A chance we can hit from here. Buck laid his weapon across his bent knee, steadied the long barrel of the burner, and pressed the firing button. The closed hatch of the ship shimmered, dissolved into a black hole. Behind Travis, someone let out the yammer of a war-whoop. Fire! Cut the walls to pieces! Travis did not need that order from Jill Lee. He was already beaming unseen destruction at the best target he could ask for, the side of the sphere. If the globe was armed, there was no weapon which could be depressed far enough to reach the marksman at ground level. Holes appeared, irregular gaps and tears in the fabric of the ship. The Apaches were turning the side of the globe into lacework. How far those rays penetrated into the interior, they could not guess. The movement at one of the holes, the chattering burst of machine-gun fire, spatters of soil and gravel into their faces. They could be cut to pieces by that. The hole enlarged, a scream, cut off. They will not be too quick to try that again, Nolan observed with cold calm from behind Travis Post. Methodically, they continued to beam the ship. It would never be space-borne again. There were neither the skills nor materials here to repair such damage. It is like laying a knife to fat, Lupi said as he crawled up beside Travis. Slice! Slice! Move! Travis reached to the left, pulled at Jill Lee's shoulder. Travis did not know whether it was possible or not, but he had a heady vision of their combined firepower cutting the globe in half, slicing it crosswise with the ease Loopy admired. They scurried through cover just as someone behind yelled a warning. Travis threw himself down, rolled into a new firing position. An arrow sang over his head. The Reds were doing what the Apaches had known they would, calling in the controlled Mongols to fight. The attack on the ship must be stepped up, or the Amerindians would be forced to retreat. Already a new lacing of holes appeared under their concentrated efforts. With the gun held tight to his middle, Travis found his feet, zigzagged across the bare ground for the nearest of those openings. Another arrow clanged harmlessly against the fabric of the ship a foot from his goal. He made it in over jagged metal shards which glowed faintly and reeked of ozone. The weapon's beams had penetrated well past both the outer shell and the wall of insulation webbing. He climbed a second and smaller break into a corridor enough like those of the western ship to be familiar. 
The Red Spacer, based on the general plan of the alien derelict ship as his own had been, could not be very different. Travis tried to subdue his heavy breathing and listen. He heard a confused shouting and the burr of what might be an alarm system. The ship's brain was the control cabin. Even if the Reds dared not try to lift now, that was the core of their communication lines. He started along the corridor, trying to figure out its orientation in relation to that all-important nerve center. The Apache shoved open each door he passed with one shoulder, and twice he played a light beam on installations within cabins. He had no idea of their use, but the wholesale destruction of each and every machine was what good sense and logic dictated. There was a sound behind. Travis whirled, saw Jill Lee and beyond him Buck. "'Up?' Jill Lee asked. "'And down,' Buck added. "'The Tatars say they have hollowed a bunker beneath.' "'Separate and do as much damage as you can,' Travis suggested. "'Agreed.' Travis sped on. He passed another door and then backtracked hurriedly as he realized it had given on to an engine-room. With the gun, he blasted two long lines, cutting the fittings into ragged lumps. Abruptly, the lights went out. The burr of alarms was silenced. Part of the ship, if not all, was dead. And now it might come to hunter and hunted in the dark. But that was an advantage as far as the Apaches were concerned. Back in the corridor again, Travis crept through a curiously lifeless atmosphere. The shouting was stilled as if the sudden failure of the machines had stunned the Reds. A tiny sound, perhaps the scrape of a boot on a ladder. Travis edged back into a compartment. A flash of light momentarily lighted the corridor. The approaching figure was using a torch. Travis drew his knife with one hand, reversed it so he could use the heavy hilt as a silencer. The other was hurrying now, on his way to investigate the burned-out engine cabin. Travis could hear the rasp of his fast breathing. Now! The Apache had put the gun down, his left arm closed about a shoulder, and the red gasped as Travis struck with the knife-hilt. Not clean, he had to hit a second time before the struggles of the man were over. Then, using his hands for eyes, he stripped the limp body on the floor of automatic and torch. With the Red's weapon in the front of his sash, the burner in one hand and the torch in the other, Travis prowled on. There was a good chance that those above might believe him to be their comrade returning. He found the ladder leading to the next level, began to climb, pausing now and then to listen. Shock preceded sound. Under him the ladder swayed and the globe itself rocked a little. A blast of some kind must have been set off at or under the level of the ground. The bunker Buck had mentioned? Travis clung to the ladder, waiting for the vibrations to subside. There was a shouting above, a questioning. Hurriedly he ascended to the next level, scrambled out and away from the ladder, just in time to avoid the light from another torch flashed down the well. Again that call of inquiry. Then a shot, the boom of the explosion loud in the confined space. To climb into the face of that light with a waiting marksman above was sheer folly. Could there be another way up? Travis retreated down one of the corridors, raying out from the ladder well. 
A quick inspection of the cabins along that route told him he had reached a section of living quarters. The pattern was familiar. The control cabin would be on the next level. Suddenly the Apache remembered something. On each level there should be an emergency opening giving access to the insulation space between the inner and outer skins of the ship, through which repairs could be made. If he could find that and climb up to the next level... The light shining down the well remained steady, and there was the echoing crack of another shot. But Travis was far enough away from the ladder now to dare use his own torch, seeking the door he needed on the wall surface. With a leap of heart he sighted the outline. His luck was in. The Russian and Western ships were alike. Once the panel was open he flashed his torch up, finding the climbing rungs, and above, the shadow outline of the next level opening. Securing the alien gun in his sash beside the automatic and holding the torch in his mouth, Travis climbed, not daring to think of the deep drop below. Four, five, ten rungs, and he could reach the other door. His fingers slid over it, searching for the release catch. But there was no answering give. Balling his fist, he struck down at an awkward angle and almost lost his balance as the panel fell away beneath his blow. The door swung and he pulled through. Darkness. Travis snapped on the torch for an instant, saw about him the relays of a comm system, and gave it a full spraying as he pivoted, destroying the eyes and ears of the ship, unless the burnout he had affected below had already done that. A flash of automatic fire from his left a searing burn along his arm an inch or so below the shoulder. Travis' action was purely reflex. He swung the burner around, even as his mind gave a frantic no. To defend himself with an automatic, knife, arrow, yes, but not this way. He huddled against the wall. An instant earlier there had been a man there, a living, breathing man, one of his own species, if not of his own beliefs. Then, because his own muscles had unconsciously obeyed warrior training, there was this. So easy to deal death without really meaning to. The weapon in his hands was truly the devil gift they had right to fear. Such weapons were not to be put into the hands of men, any men, no matter how well-intentioned. Travis gulped in great mouthfuls of air. He wanted to throw the burner away, hurl it from him but the task he could rightfully use it for was not yet done. Somehow he reeled on into the control cabin to render the ship truly a dead thing, and free himself of the heavy burden of guilt and terror between his hands. That weight could be laid aside. Memory could not. And no one of his kind must ever have to carry such memories again. The booming of the drums was like a pulse quickening the blood to a rhythm which bit at the brain, made a man's eyes shine, his muscles tense as if he held an arrow to bow-cord or arched his fingers about a knife-hilt. A fire blazed high, and in its light men leapt and whirled in a mad dance with tulwar blades catching and reflecting the red gleam of flames. Mad, wild, the Mongols were drunk with victory and freedom. Beyond them the silver globe of the ship showed the black holes of its death, which was also the death of the past for all of them. What now? 
Menlik, the dangling of amulets and charms tinkling as he moved, came up to Travis. There was none of the wild fervor in the shaman's face. Instead, it was as if he had taken several strides out of the life of the horde, was emerging into another person, and the question he asked was one they all shared. Travis felt drained, flattened. They had achieved their purpose. The handful of red overlords were dead, their machines burned out. There were no controls here any more. Men were free in mind and body. What were they to do with that freedom? First, the Apache spoke his own thoughts, we must return these. The three alien weapons were lashed into a square of Mongol fabric, hidden from sight, although they could not be so easily shut out of mind. Only a few of the others, Apache or Mongol, had seen them, and they must be returned before their power was generally known. I wonder if in days to come, Buck mused, they will not say that we pulled lightning out of the sky, as did the Thunderslayer, to aid us. But this is right, we must return them and make that valley and what it holds taboo. And what if another ship comes? One of yours? Menlik asked shrewdly. Travis stared beyond the Tatar shaman to the men about the fire. His nightmare dragged into the open. What if a ship did come in? One with Ash, Murdoch, men he knew and liked, friends on board. What then of his guardianship of the towers and their knowledge? Could he be as sure of what to do then? He rubbed his hand across his forehead and said slowly, We shall take steps when, or if, that happens. But could they? Would they? He began to hope fiercely that it would not happen, at least in his lifetime, and then felt the cold bleakness of the exile they must will themselves into. Whether we like it or not, was he talking to the others or trying to argue down his own rebellion? We cannot let what lies under the towers be known, found, used, unless by men who are wiser and more controlled than we are in our time. Menlik drew his shaman's wand, twiddled it between his fingers, and beneath his drooping lids watched the three Apaches with a new kind of measurement. Then I say to you this. Such a guardianship must be a double charge, shared by my people as well. For if they suspect that you alone control these powers and their secret, there will be envy, hatred, fear, a division between us from the first, war, raids. This is a large land, and neither of our groups numbers many. Shall we split apart fatally from this day when there is room for all? If these ancient things are evil, then let us both guard them with a common taboo." He was right, of course, and they would have to face the truth squarely. To both Apache and Mongol, any off-world ship, no matter from which side, would be a menace. Here was where they would remain and set roots. The sooner they began thinking of themselves as people with a common bond, the better it would be and Menlik's suggestion provided a tie. "'You speak well,' Buck was saying. "'This shall be a thing we share. We are three who know. Do you be three also, but choose well, Menlik.' "'Be assured that I will,' 
the Tatar returned. We start a new life here. There is no going back. But, as I have said, the land is wide. We have no quarrel with one another, and perhaps our two people shall become one. After all, we do not differ too greatly." He smiled and gestured to the fire and the dancers. Among the Mongols another man had gone into action, his head thrown back as he leapt and twirled, voicing a deep war-cry. Travis recognized Declay. Apache, Mongol, both raiders, horsemen, hunters, fighters when the need arose. No, there was no great difference. Both had been tricked into coming here, and they had no allegiance now for those who had sent them. Perhaps clan and horde would combine, or perhaps they would drift apart. Time would tell. But there would be the bond of the guardianship, the determination that what slept in the towers would not be roused, in their lifetime or many lifetimes. Travis smiled a bit crookedly. A new religion of sorts, a priesthood with sacred and forbidden knowledge. In time a whole new life and civilization stemming from this night. The bleak cold of his early thought cut less deep. There was a different kind of adventure here. He reached out and gathered up the bundle of the burners, glancing from Buck to Jilee to Menlik. Then he stood up, the weight of the burden in his arms, the feeling of a greater weight inside him. Shall we go? To get the weapons back, that was of first importance. Maybe then he could sleep soundly, to dream of riding across the Arizona range at dawn under a blue sky with a wind in his face, a wind carrying the scent of pinion pine and sage a wind which would never caress or hearten him again, a wind his sons and sons' sons would never know, to dream troubled dreams and hope in time those dreams would fade and thin, that a new world would blanket out the old. Better so, Travis told himself with defiance and determination, better so. The End of the Defiant Agents by Andre Norton